So what what makes it stand out to you? What what is it that makes this one of your favorite Scorsese movies? Because that's you know that's no light statement, right? The man has numerous yeah. classics. So what is it about the King of Comedy? Well, Rupert Pupkin, De Niro's character in it, who wants to be a late night show host so badly, it consumes his every waking moment. Um, and but he has the psychology the psychological problems on top of that. And it clashes together in a very crazy, destructive, but entertaining way. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I think works so well about it is Pupkin as a character is an entire universe. Mm-hmm. Um, he is an outsized kind of character, but they worked on him so well. They gave him, I mean, De Niro loses himself again inside of the character it's almost like two people are given full reign to create someone wholesale and they just fall in love with the craziest person they could think of um so they want to make sure they show him like okay but we want everyone else to fall in love with him too so how can we make them fall in love with this crazy guy so um there are these wonderful set pieces involving kidnappings and uh breaking into places and auditions in this film, but it takes the time to give Rupert a lot of quiet moments. And we Mm -hmm. were given a lot of glimpses of his inner life. And while we could never imagine doing the things he does in this film, uh, just a few minutes in, you know, he would, it's not like a forced wacky. Wow. Look at this psychopath movie. Um, and it's one of those where I laugh during it, but I, I, all, I like make little fists too. <laughs> right. um, it's almost like a curb your enthusiasm thing where there's like so much humiliation going on. <laughs> it can be a little much, but oh no, it's just, it's wonderful. It, it pulls off a lot of really ambitious things uh, and it just sells it. Every single one. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of a podcast directed by. So we are now into, I guess, the second half of our first half of our Scorsese watch. So <laughs> there's a lot going on here. So in this episode, we are looking at, I guess, two lesser known uh, Scorsese movies as far as the general public. Uh, so we have The King of Comedy and After Hours. Uh, so, uh, we'll start, of course, with The King of Comedy. This is a movie that critically did very well. Fiscally did not do so well, uh, but is a movie that uh, I had not watched before, but I'd heard from numerous people that this is the underseen masterpiece of Martin Scorsese. So, Mike, had you already seen this before uh, before this podcast? Yeah, I watched this uh, um, back in the I think VHS days, um, catching up with stuff like when I worked at a video store. So, mm. you know, dating me to like uh, the sort of last hurrah of, of video stores. Yeah. Um, and, you know, just, I don't know, it seemed, you know, coming off of a Raging Bull episode, it's like, oh, let's, seems like a change of pace. Let's see what this is. After Hours was also one of those, like, uh, VHS type things. So I think those movies kind of play better in that. Like, it's like very low key. Let's just throw this on and see what it is. Um, I even tried to replicate 
that with both these films by watching them late at night and just <laughs> that sort of ambling nature of how things play out. So yeah, I had seen both because I'm cool, Dave. Of and course I you get are. My what VHS a, story to go with what it. What a hipster. Like I actually yeah. watched it at uh, when I was a video store clerk. Of course <laughs> you did. Uh, so I didn't really know anything about this movie going in. Like I knew the lead character's name only because I have a friend on Twitter that that is their uh, their screen name on Twitter is uh, Rupert Pupkin. Um, but that's the uh, was it just the discs yep. podcast? Yep. Yes. Correct. Yep. Um, yeah. If you were not aware of the movie, you probably wouldn't get that this is. Well, I can't speak for him, but I assume would not be like that's the guy I want to base my life around. Right. <laughs> After watching this, I have a lot of questions for this. As I said, now. don't want to speak for him. Maybe he feels that way. I doubt it. I think it's you know just a, a good fictional character. Just a he clever, likes film. clever. Yeah. yeah. Um, and this is um, to me one of the strangest De Niro performances I've ever seen. I think it's really good. I think it's an impressive performance, but if you had given me this script and told me about this character, would would he be at the top of your list to, to play I mean, Rupert Pupkin? You know, he, he did Rocky and Bullwinkle. I mean, what do you, what do you want? Well, that was much later. I mean, at this point oh, in his okay. career, like coming off of raging bull and New York, New York and taxi but- driver, I see how you're doing this with this the Scorsese month. You know, when they get later in the career, that's when you bring on Hiro from True Bromance because it's like, well, that's when any when, old shit will do. That's, that's when the nonsense happens. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Wow. Unlike Dave, our expert on... this month, Stephanie Crawford, we bring her in for the real good stuff. Well, so. I expect you hating on Hiro, but it's like, do you have to hate on the Aviator too? Is the Aviator like you know Scorsese's Rocky and Bullwinkle moment? <laughs> no, that is a great movie, and we will get to that. Okay, but let's, all right. So. I would have would thought going in that he to was play this role, but yeah. Um, surface level, no. I mean, but when you're watching it, it's like, oh, um, he's not actually a comedian. He's a deranged, not even star fucker. He is someone like that you kind of, you know, we said it about Taxi Driver, but I think now this applies in a more comfortable way with social media that you see people who feel like, they deserve the spotlight, mm-hmm. but they have no discernible talent. <laughs> well, they have no discernible evidence of that talent. Maybe they do, but right. they, like as you know, but the so nice, far, there's nothing there. Yeah, the nicest way that Mr. Uh, Pupkin here is dealt with is saying, you know, maybe just work your way up. Now you, you not even, <laughs> there's no evidence in the film that he's gone to a comedy club yeah, and try, try to actually do an open he mic. He just wants to skip to the front of the line. Straight to Johnny Carson. That's yep. Which I guess originally who they wanted uh, in that role was Johnny Carson. I don't think that works. I don't think. Yeah, I'm I'm glad they didn't. I think Jerry Lewis actually is pretty phenomenal here. Like, I think he's really, really good. It's a great performance. He didn't feel that way. He He also (laughs) wanted an ending where Rupert killed him. That's the the dark ending he wanted. There's there's a version of that, but I think it's far darker what actually happens. I agree. And actually, I'm glad you brought up Taxi Driver because I think there's there's an interesting connection with these, with these two movies in, in their endings where it's like someone does something awful uh, and then they're kind of lauded for it. You know, he gets his book deal. He gets his, you know, his face on TV forever. Rupert you know? leans into the everyman aspect of it, which is actually, that's the moment that like completes this film to me as like masterpiece level. Because up until that point, it's pretty fun. It's pretty dark, pretty deranged. Like I put it more in line with like 
um, a lighter Cape Fear or Shutter mm-hmm. Island, where it's like Scorsese kind of dabbling in like a, a genre piece. But the moment in the monologue after all of these events with with seemingly being oblivious to like the execution of this thing that Pupkin in his monologue introduces at the last minute, like I'm not even supposed to be here today. Very Dante from clerks and wins the audience over more for admitting that he has kidnapped the host of the show that they've come to see more so than his jokes. It is a very savvy way of putting himself in the public conscious that wouldn't work with his gags, which I think is maybe one of the problems with the films or at least the response initially is people are like, wait, isn't he supposed to be funny? Why is this not like funny to me? And I think the point that's that would ruin the point of the movie. If he was actually good at this, I think it I think it fails. Like if he's actually a great surprise, he's actually a great stand up comic. Like, I don't think this movie works at all. I think his jokes should be old and tired. They should be simplistic and that everyone who he has shown this tape to is right. That like, no, no, this needs work. <laughs> like, you know, no matter what relationship you dream that you have with Jerry, you're not good at this yet. Well, his material is that, you know, fairly vanilla general shit of mm-hmm. like, you know, I've had a you know rough family life or, you know, we didn't all get along. But he's he's just like keyed into like this has worked before. And the only thing that actually works for him <laughs> is the very unique idea he has to kidnap a man. Uh, the host of a show and then get himself on that show. That's, you know, he's removed all of the personal elements that make stand up work. Like, is there anything, I mean, like if you look at George Carlin's stuff or Jerry Seinfeld, they're two very different comedians mm-hmm. and they probably have the talent and the history of working a room where they could deliver the same joke and get more laughs than you and I would. Yes. But the what made them way more successful, like above the line, like comedians more than just someone who can tell a joke, is that they're going to bring their own sensibilities to that right. joke. Mm-hmm. And Pumpkin, he has no sensibilities any, of yeah. his own. No, nope. not not until he admits his crime, and then that's that's when it's like, oh, there's something, something else about this, this guy. guy. Yeah. yeah, I also like the way that the film is set up from the very beginning. Like you have this moment where you're like, oh, is this like a fantasy film? What's going on? Where like there's a shot of you know Jerry saying like, I need you to take over for a week. It's like, oh, I don't know if I could do that as I'm really busy. And then the next shot is him bouncing back and forth, playing both parts. And I love that shot because it immediately tells you what kind of movie you're in for. Like, there's no mystery about whether um, whether Rupert is deranged from the very beginning of the film. There's no build to that. Like, you know, right away. You don't know if he has talent or not, but you know that he is not seeing the world clearly. And it's such an interesting choice to have this be your protagonist. Like, Jerry Langford is not the protagonist in this movie. It's Rupert. You're following Rupert for the whole movie. And from the very, like, maybe the second scene of the movie, you know that this man is damaged and insane. Even the first scene where he's just like, oh, I saved you. Let me get in the car with you and let me have a conversation with you uh, on our taxi ride home. It's like uh, he has no gauge. And there's actually some uh, crossover again with Taxi Driver. This is a man who has no idea how to interact socially. With anyone. Well, the healthiest relationship he probably has with this Rita or not Rita um, is uh, Masha, Sandra Barnhart's character. OK, I was like, about to bring her into this. OK, because, good. I knew look, it. Look, I mean, I was watching yes. this. I'm like, oh, man, Mike is going to have a ball with this character. Um, <laughs> well, to lot. me, she's she's the hero of the, the film. Like <laughs> she's 
she's the only one I'd like to hang out with. Is Masha? Which, she knows what she wants. Um, she's you know she's bankrolled. Apparently, very yeah. wealthy parents. Yep. Uh, so if you know you have to count on her to to, to hold a hostage, she can do that. Yep. Uh, but she'll treat them right. You know, fancy dinner, fancy glasses. I mean, ties you know, them up. Candles but, lit. You know. Well, look, we don't know. I know they what they're into. To, it's true. Yeah, you, you gotta gotta ease them into it. You know, um, Sandra Bernhardt though, a little bit different as far as being able to mask her particular bout of crazy, and that's I think what makes Rupert Pumpkin play but De Niro a little more sinister. Mm-hmm. As like, you could remove the Jerry character from it. Jerry is just the fixture of where he wants to be. Whereas she seems to have a genuine, whatever it is for Jerry love for mm-hmm. Jerry and not for his position in the world. I mean, obviously she would not have probably fallen for him if he wasn't famous and on her television set, but yeah, Rupert, he could push him aside. Means let's to an just, end, baby. That's yeah. Just, let's just say Jerry gets the, like the Conan treatment. Suddenly he's the, he's a Leno fan again, you know, yeah, or he's Jimmy like Fallon that. fan. You know, it doesn't yeah. matter. He has no taste. And to me, that's what I love about this movie now is we we are surrounded by people that want to be into something so bad. And then you listen to them and you're like, it's not just a difference of taste. It's like I'm sure you've met them online where it's like these people seemingly have no taste in what they're talking about. (laughs) And it's it is scary to me to come across these, these poor bastards and know that every day they're logging onto the internet to talk movies, music, what have you. And you're just astounded that they are spending that much time on it. And there's no, like they have no antenna for anything. They like, they don't know themselves at all. And Rupert, I don't know. I can't get a gauge on it. Um, I've watched it a few times. Does he know that he's not talented? Like what's your read on it? Do you, do you, do you think that he believes he's talented or does he know that he's not, but that's not going to stop him from being famous? Oh, I think it's definitely the latter. I think he's very aware that he's not talented, but nothing's going to get in his way. And I think you use the exact right word to describe him being sinister. Um, and I think it's very well masked by his kind of genial nature throughout the movie. And I think, you know, you only get you get your first hints of who he really is in the ways he interacts with his mother. Um, when she's like interrupting him, like that's when you see how hideous he truly is. Because allowed be- him to have a pretty good set, though. Yeah, had a pretty pretty cool little. You know, uh, I don't know if you ever saw the episode of Seinfeld where Kramer tries to do a talk show in his apartment, like because he finds like you know some shows been canceled and there's like you know in an alleyway like a set set dressing has just been tossed out and he's like I could take that and put it in my apartment and have my own little talk show, which is his own version of being deranged, but. Here we have an appearance from, you know, Liza Minnelli, which who has starred in the greatest Scorsese film up to this point, and she <laughs> she comes back to play along with Rupert Pupkin. Did you find this dynamic a little more palatable to you, Dave? Liza Minnelli as like a cardboard cutout and De Niro. <laughs> Did that work out? Yeah, for you. Yeah, this time? it worked for me better. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right, so you liked Liza better here. <laughs> No, I don't think that's true. Um, I like the movie better. Um, I think obviously Liza Minnelli's performance in New York, New York is better than her non-performance here. <laughs> if that's what you want to hear. <laughs> um, but those sequences are, I mean, honestly, the sequences where De Niro's alone are somehow even more disturbing than like the kidnapping sequences. And, you know, granted, it's fake, but him holding a gun to Jerry's head. I mean, the scenes where he's interacting with these cardboard cutouts and 
the scene where he's making his tape, although is a very funny scene, is still really dark and really disturbing. Like, because you just see that utter lack of accountability and the lack of social interaction. Like, he clearly has no clue what these people are asking for and has no clue that he's being brushed off. Like, he just is, like, so focused on what he needs to do that none of the other ancillary stuff matters at all to him. And he just goes well, forward. there's that moment where he's able to push up the, uh, I guess, response date when this assistant is trying to tell him that, you know, they probably won't have the tape list to, like, until Monday. So you're assuming, like, after the weekend. Mm-hmm. And he's able to, just by sticking it out, and like sort of refusing to abide by social norms. Just making cases. things uncomfortable. Like, uh, and you know what? She she quickly grasped at that point, uh, this is not going anywhere. Like, yeah, this maybe this maybe before he oversteps by sticking it out, uh, there was a chance that there was, hey, maybe there's a hidden talent here. And he's just like, was really desperate, but it's because he's got the goods. You can tell that's when she makes a decision. I'm not listening to this tape. (laughs) I will get back to you tomorrow. That makes it quicker for me to give you a no. Yep, let's just do this tomorrow. We won't wait till Monday. Uh, That scene, you know, I find really funny because I like, I like seeing normal people being put out by (laughs) horrible assholes. Like, you know, that's how I feel when I like go on to Twitter. I feel like that normal person, (laughs) like (laughs) surrounded by freaks. Um, But we especially in movies we encourage like these like hell Mary, hell Mary, like, you know, crossing of boundaries with people as long as what you said, like as long as we know that the people are talented or where mm-hmm. we have the expectation that they're talented. Um, there is that sort of like star discovery fantasy that we like to go to movies and see, we like to hear about. And, <laughs> you know, we definitely probably, I think audiences were made uncomfortable, the ones that actually like paid to see this during its initial, like, you know, infamy, I guess is a bomb. You know, they don't want to spend their time seeing someone that they can't, they can't root for in the sense that, you know, the taxi driver character, if you want to make that sort of comparison between two is like a proper double feature. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the least, <laughs> Travis Bickle's good at killing people. Like he's, <laughs> he's good know, at he's, something. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Here, uh, he's not even a good uh, kidnapper here necessarily. No, he, I mean, he I drops the gun when he comes yeah, out of the that. car. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> it's a it's a really great physical performance from De Niro. Like, it's, it's really impressive because he is someone that has, especially after these movies that we've seen, and it has this automatic physical presence. And the fact that he can make himself into this character who doesn't have that anymore, who, like, is just kind of an, I guess, like, the best way to describe him is an oaf. Like, just like, you know, isn't aware of his own body and is just kind of chuckling at everything. And some of that, of course, is an act and it is very sinister. Uh, But I love his performance here. I think it's really good. Like the bit with the cue cards where, you know, some of them are blank, some of them are upside down. Like, Well, I love Jay Lewis. His his performance in that scene is Because even though he is Uh. being held at what he he (laughs) thinks is gunpoint, uh, even though it's a fake gun, even then he is the consummate professional where he's just like, you know... During my kidnapping, you can't even get this right. You can't even get your sort of ransom cue cards thing right. He's just so put out. I love movies. Love seeing people put out on film. <laughs> and it's surprising me that Jerry Lewis, he said he was just playing himself. And But I, it, 
he didn't realize how good he was. Apparently, like yeah. he just you know he thought the film was good, but he was just like because Scorsese said he was like actually undervalued and sort of underpraised. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and Lewis was like, no, nah, no, nah, I was just like I was just reacting as I would. And I'm like, yeah, but a lot of people that doesn't translate on film yeah. where it comes across as so natural and so funny. Yes. <laughs> Because he doesn't have one big showy moment, even in the fantasy sequences where he's like begging Pupkin to take over the show. You know, he he's never becomes a cartoon character. Mm-hmm. He's like a, he's just like an incredibly sort of beaten down man <laughs> in fantasy and in reality. It's great. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Uh, it makes me wonder what I would have thought of this movie if I went to the theater in 1982, like not knowing much about it. Like I knew it was kind of a dark comedy going in. But if you, you know, there's a movie called The King of Comedy. Okay, I'm going to go check that out. And this is not, I don't think, what you would expect to see. Or, I mean, <laughs> I don't know, but I assume neither one of us have much of a relationship with Jay Lewis on film. Like, no. I, I don't know if I've ever seen one of his, like, lead performances on film I all the think, way through. I've seen I clips. Yeah, I mean, it's just a part of the culture. Like, you know yeah. who he is, you know his bits, but like, yeah, so I don't have that connection. I just can't get out of my head. Like, I'm so glad that this wasn't Johnny Carson. I guess Johnny Carson turned it down because it was too dark and he didn't want to, you know, he didn't want any part of it. But like, I read I, that he told Scorsese he was a one take guy. Like, that was, like, so that was not going to work. Obviously, it was uh, De Niro. We didn't talk about it in Taxi Driver, our episode, but apparently De Niro and Sybil Shepherd are just like two incredible opposites as far as like, how they work on a set. And uh, yeah, he was much more a fan of Jodie Foster because I think Jodie Foster, even as like a 12 year old was like willing to like run lines like right. all day long. And simple shepherd was like, just no, like, I know my lines. Why would well, I? <laughs> uh, well, actually she didn't, but I guess she was just like, you know what? Just give me my line. <laughs> like I'll just, you know, <laughs> whatever. Just it's, leave it's me the line. I'll play. say it. It's fine. She's great. Yeah. Ended up working out in the end. Who cares? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this movie is it's it's kind of hard to grasp it. it. Like you know, it transcends genre. It's not what you expect. Like even when you go in knowing this is a dark comedy and kind of messed up, like it it's past that. Like it is it is really disturbing. Not only what happens in the movie is disturbing, but I think the the message it leaves you with is also disturbing. In some ways, weirdly, almost more disturbing than Taxi Driver. Like this is, and I think because Taxi Driver is like a very kind of masculine violent movie where this is not like all the violence is staged all the violence is fake you know like even the way they tie him up is patently silly like i mean sandra bernhard is maybe the most violent just to uh the table setting just like yes clearing (laughs) her own objects uh that uh, that sequence where she talks about just wanting to do something crazy and she like (laughs) it's terrifying (laughs) like (laughs) terrifying and Kind of cool. I yeah, mean, I mean, <laughs> let's do something crazy tonight. Just get insane. I want to be crazy. I want to be nuts. I want some fun. God damn it. My doctor says, don't have any fun. You can't have fun. No, you're not allowed to have a good time. You can't get crazy. See, I have to be in control. And I like being in control. But you know, for one night, I'd like to see myself out of my head. Wouldn't you like to see me out of my head? Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be fabulous? Having fun. Fun is my middle name. That's right, having some fun. Never had this much fun before. That's right. Good old fashioned, all American fun. 
if you're Jerry, that's the only thing I hold against the guy is like, hey, maybe you missed out on get yours, uh, buddy. <laughs> maybe you missed out on a pretty, you know, pretty good night with uh, Sandy B. She here. just wants to do something crazy. What's wrong with that? <laughs> Chases him down the street in her underwear and high heels. Just a, a classy, classy, classy girl. lady. Yeah, I, I think she's great here. I, I, I enjoy her character. I did too. And it's I when she showed up because she kind of became kind of a mainstay in the 80s and 90s at just playing this kind of character like usually a little bit crazy very obnoxious very brash and i was worried when she showed up i was like oh god am i gonna be able to deal with this for two hours but i think she's pretty (laughs) phenomenal here actually i think it's really really well done uh i love these differences that you know when i think i've got a good read on you when between us you know we, we we had the big disagreement on new york new york and apparently we get to sandra bernhardt and i'm like oh yes i'm in for a treat and you are like please don't don't mess this up don't go too far yeah no but i think it's it's strangely strange to say but a perfectly balanced performance from sandra bernhardt here like i think she's really really good and i don't think there's really a weak link in this movie and it's a movie that is so extreme and so over the top that it would be really easy to just take it one step too far or actually one step not far enough. Uh, like one of my favorite scenes in the entire film is when he takes his would-be girlfriend to Jerry's house <laughs> unannounced. It's fantastic because the way De Niro plays it, if you don't know any better, like if we had been following Rupert for that long, you would be kind of like, wait, what's the real story here? Like, what's actually going on? And you can see his date slowly kind of work it out. Like, Oh shit! Like we are not supposed to be here. We sh- we should go. Like, and I love the way that De Niro goes all in, and Rupert goes all in in that moment, as if he totally believes that no, we're buddies, we're good friends. Yeah, I mean, my I guess the the painful element about that sequence for me is that <clears throat> if this if this film had been a huge success, maybe it would have saved all of mankind from having to sit through Darren Aronofsky's mother because everything that's (laughs) great is in this one sequence, all of the terror, all of the humorous bits it's right there. And we don't, we don't need a full feature of Jennifer Lawrence getting, you know, raped and having babies eaten too far. Poor form. Disagree. Darren Aronofsky. (laughs) One of the best films of the last decade. Mother. Yes, absolutely. I'm changing the subject from your nonsense. (laughs) Just to point out, uh, that, uh, looks like the previous credit for Sandra Bernhardt before the King of comedy was in something called nice dreams, which looks like a 80 sex comedy where she is listed as playing the character called girl nut. (laughs) So she, she had, you know, she had a type early on. And then she was uh, in Hudson Hawk playing a very similar kind of, unleashed type of characters so she made you know good for her she made an entire career out of uh, essentially hey, being crazy on screen and being friends with madonna that was you just referenced a better movie than mother right there hudson hawk <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> let's let's move on from that um yeah so this is um i think i was most impressed by this movie because like de niro is of course a great actor but i think he he plays similar characters throughout his career, like in, you know, especially before he kind of moved headlong into comedy. Like he usually played kind of the the tough guy, the badass, you know, and this is a very different, like from the first scene he's in where he's just so gregarious and so over the top friendly that you're like, oh, my God, what kind of movie is this? And I kind of respect that this he that he chose to do this next after Raging Bull. Like, I don't think you get much farther away 
from Jake LaMotta than Rupert Pupkin. I mean, it's a true victory lap kind of movie mm-hmm. where, uh, you know, the what, what did uh, the Coen brothers do after No Country for Old Men? Was it Burn After Reading? Was yeah, that their... sounds about right. Yeah, especially because we talked about Scorsese thought he would never make another movie again. You know, he thought Raging Bull was it. Then all of a sudden that made some money and he was like, oh, I can do anything but I isn't, want. Isn't that similar to like a teenager not really believing that they'll live past 30? Yeah. Gonna... <laughs> I'm <laughs> like, invincible. What? Like You made Taxi Driver. You really think that in the span of five years you're going to fall so far that no one will ever produce uh, another film of yours? Come on. Come on. It's like yeah. Tarantino with his like, well, nope, only doing 10. Well, you add day. depression and cocaine on top of one another and you get uh, some interesting thought processes going on for Marty there. I'm not going to give him any benefit of that. Uh, cocaine usage in the 70s? Come off it. You think well, he's the only one? I think even for the 70s, he was using pretty heavily. <laughs> Jesus. God, we can't. We, we give the man two months. Now you're saying he's the greatest cocaine abuser of all times. Jesus. Dave. And he made great movies. This guy rules, man. This I saw <laughs> New York, New York. I know that. <laughs> of course. All right. Uh, so I think we're going to move on from King of Comedy now. We're going to take a little break and we will come back and talk about After Hours. Uh, but what do you think of After Hours? Is this another one that people should go back and see if they haven't caught it? This is where I am in the very unpopular camp. I am not a huge After Hours fan, which um, surprises me. And it's why I keep watching it again. I actually just <laughs> I'm going to like this eventually. It. I'm going <laughs> to... I rewatched it right before we recorded this. <laughs> uh, I, I love... Uh, movies where it's it's an all-night movie crazy things are happening they just can't get home I love that premise mm-hmm. I'm such a sucker for it and screwball comedies that's my favorite subgenre of, of film really after horror um, but <laughs> I don't know what it is just I love every actor in this so much I mean you mm-hmm. put Catherine O'Hara in a movie you yep. got me Usually, but there's something about this that I feel this is maybe one, maybe the only Scorsese movie where the characters feel a little bit inauthentic to me. Mm. And I don't really think that's a failing on his part. I think it just wasn't the point of the movie. The point of the movie uh, was to be kind of bonkers and outlandish. And this one was more about just like little set pieces here and there it you know it wasn't trying to be an authentic look at what it's like if you don't have money for the train kind of movie uh but i just can't connect with it all right so we're back from our break now it's time to talk about another i guess underseen classic from martin scorsese uh after hours so is this another one that you saw in your video store days Yes, Dave. Yes, it was. I'm glad you remembered my fantastic introduction, my hipster card there, um, because I'm not quite old enough to have seen this in theaters because I would have been like three or four years old when this came out. Uh, it came out the day before my third birthday. So no, I, <laughs> even if I was in the theater, I probably would have no memory or a point of reference for why any of this is funny or exciting or thrilling. And I have to credit my wife. This is one of the few that she actually watched with me for this month. 
and she got to the end and as soon as the credits played she just said that was incredibly stressful and <laughs> she's right that was it she's 100 yeah. percent right yeah especially for like on its surface it is very much i think you mentioned this earlier kind of a screwball comedy like what what else can it's go a wrong movie um, yeah i think honestly it's more of a horror movie than anything else it has <laughs> well okay so the biggest flaw because my wife didn't really care for it and this is one that i was really looking forward to seeing again because i remembered it being like you know, I I felt like the cool guy that had discovered like oh. the forgotten Scorsese film. And I was like, this is great. And you're you're expert for the second month, Hiro. We've actually had conversations uh, off mic about this, where he, I think he's probably felt that I've pushed this one too much. As far as like, no, no, it's like you know, if you give me like a Mount Rushmore of Scorsese films, After Hours has got to be in there because it's it is a palate cleanser in a way. Mm-hmm. It's a change of pace. So if you're gonna have you know, shocking violence, you know, brooding characters, De Niro, we're going to get Griffin Dunn in this sort of slapstick comedy. I have to say, uh, and I don't know if it's in keeping with your, uh, your theory, because I disagree with it, of watching it with someone who's not engaged with it. Mm. Or maybe I think it's my age. Cause I, you know, I watched this as a teenager where it's just like, yeah, man, any, anything can happen. You, know, you go out and who knows, you know, you New York whole, city, you know, baby. Anything whole life in front of you, you got your whole night in front of you where it's like all sorts of crazy shenanigans. And I'm like, I'm all for any of it, right? Just give me crazy characters and it's a cool story to tell later. And now I just felt tired. I just felt like, <laughs> you know, like the horror movie trope where it's like, why don't the people just leave the house, the lake, the woods? Mm-hmm. I Just walk it, home, buddy. <laughs> more than a few times, I'm like, use your fucking legs, man. Like, you know, get to get to stepping. And yes, like it's going to be a long trek. But you're running all over like these few blocks and your life is becoming <laughs> increasingly endangered. I mean, not yep. in a realistic way. And I really like that the film introduces late during all this nonsense uh, that you just see a woman shoot, presumably her husband, like multiple times. <laughs> and Griffin Dunn just says, somehow I'll be blamed for that. Like, you know, we, we've gone so far through the looking glass at that point. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, but since I think I like reveled in the sense of discovery with it when I was younger, uh, I had much, it had much less of an impact on me this mm. time because I remembered it as like, this is, oh, this is one of the greats. This is going to be so much fun. But I saw New York, New York, and I already got my buzz <laughs> with that sense of discovery. I so wonder, what's your take? I'm, I'm not going to respond to that last part. Um, of course. I, of course. <laughs> I wonder if it's just a matter of like, because it's an anything can happen movie and kind of a screwball movie, it works much better on first viewing. Then on second view, because the second view, yeah, you know it's coming. Because I love this. Like I thought it was fantastic. Uh, this is the first time I watched it. I thought Griffin Dunn was pretty great in this movie, and kind of wish that you know he's had a good career, but it made me wish that he had become uh, a, a bigger name after this. Because I loved his performance, and I liked the fact that the character isn't necessarily inherently likable. Like this is a guy who like. You know, goes on a date with a girl and then finds out, uh, she might be burned. I'm just gonna leave. Like, I'm just gonna take off. Mm. Like, I don't need this in my life. Like, what? Okay, yeah, that's <laughs> it's, it's a little crass, I guess, but it's interesting because it's maybe out of step with a guy. Like, he doesn't wait to see her naked nope. and then make up some excuse or sleep with her, knowing that he never has any intention of seeing her again. So, it's weird because what really starts to cause the problems is him leaving. But mm-hmm. in other respects, you would say like, okay, if you no longer are interested with her, don't take advantage and disengage. So I'm, I guess I don't want to punish the man for that. I mean, he the wasn't movie does. 
<laughs> the movie certainly does punish different times dave different times yes uh, also was very shocked that linda fiorentino was in this movie uh as her uh i guess her roommate kiki uh just shocked me because i just i think that woman apparently doesn't age because uh, this was way back in 1985 and you know if you look at I her did. in this and look at her dogma they're not actually that much of a difference yeah <laughs> i didn't even notice that was her really um and what what has happened to her? You know, we one episode you talked about uh, Moriarty like and being in a car accident, and uh, Linda Fiorentino well, has not worked since two thousand nine. Yeah, and before that was two thousand two. I mean, I think she got kind of a uh, uh, people in Hollywood had started saying that she was difficult to work with. Uh, one of the most vocal of those being Kevin Smith after working with her on Dogma. Uh, he has been quoted numerous times saying like, "I wish I just would have cast Janine Garofalo instead." Because uh, she like wouldn't look at me on set, she wouldn't respond to me, she wouldn't talk. I remember so. some of those comments being that she was sort of upset that all the uh, other actors were like flying in and out and doing other movies, right? And yeah. <laughs> he, he was, it was kind of funny. He was like, "Am I supposed to apologize that you're the the lead and you're in like every scene? Like we can't." What Poor you... <laughs> baby. Yeah, <laughs> and I to do? and I also know that she got her role in Men in Black by winning a hand of poker. Uh, so that that kind of rules. I like that. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. She won $12,000 in a role in a major motion picture. That's a pretty good hand of poker. Um, so, but I, I really enjoyed my time with this movie. I kind of, I think my favorite part of the movie is the way it ends. I like the fact that it ends with him having to go back to work after all this. And I guess there was some well, discussion. Well, appreciating that he's back at work after that. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think it's. Oh, dude. He, no, I think it's like, you know, that night was supposed to be his escape and he doesn't even get to go home and go to bed. He's got to go back to work, like soiled by this night. And I guess there was a big disagreement on set. Like originally it was going to end in his death. And again, we keep bringing her up. But his editor, Thelma, uh, said, no, I think it has to end with him having to start this cycle all over again. Because mm -hmm. that would be even more depressing than him dying in this movie. It's like, nope, now you have to go back to your shitty job as a word processor that has no future. Like, that is how well, this movie ends for Just him. like the great auteur Kevin Smith with Clerks. You know, originally yes. killing Dante and instead, no, he's going to keep his kind of shitty life. Yep. <laughs> shitty existence and be happy with it. Yep, Absolutely. Yeah, and I think uh, another thing that I was thinking about as I watched this movie is Rosanna Arquette, who I'm a big fan of, actually. Like, I really like her in general and like her in this movie, is that she, I guess, had the bad fortune of only being a part of these Scorsese movies that were, like, underappreciated in their time. Um, some for good reasons, some not so much. There's this, and she was also in his, uh, in New York Stories, which was a... A movie that was directed by Scorsese, by Woody Allen, and by Francis Ford Coppola. She was in the Scorsese uh, short, uh, and again, is a movie that's not very highly thought of. Not necessarily because of Scorsese's work, but mainly because of Coppola's. But she was like, you know, with this amazing director, but in these movies that no one ever brings up. Like, when you think Scorsese, very few people other than you, Hipster Mike, uh, bring up mm. uh, After Hours on the Mount Rushmore of Scorsese movies. Well, look... Uh, she got to be in a little known feature from Tarantino called Pulp Fiction. So, you know, some things worked out in her favor. It's true. Uh, but yeah, I, I where like... she got you know saddled with, oh, the one with all the shit in her face. That's <laughs> I mean, what, what do you want from me? She was in Crash from Cronenberg, which actually I don't know if you even get that on video now. I don't know. Uh, what else? Hope Floats. Oof. Sandy B, is Jeez. that good? No. All right, fine. You know what? Nothing. Pulp Fiction isn't good enough for you, so I don't know. <laughs> uh, I like Rosanna Arquette. She's got uh, 
an unhinged quality uh, about mm-hmm. her, even when she's being her delivery is like perfectly pleasant. Um, so yeah, this is, um, I brought up Jonathan Demi in another Scorsese episode when we were talking about concert films. Uh, you know, this is a version of what he would do. I think after this called something wild, where it's like mm-hmm. this kind of squarish dude who decides to, you know, take a walk on the wild side or, you know, take a risk and, you know, chase a girl. And <laughs> then the movie spends, you know, better part of like 90 minutes, two hours punishing him. So this is like a sub genre to itself. Mm-hmm. And it seems particularly in the eighties, we're getting this. I don't know if it's this, you know, the wall street sort of culture, or it's like the sort of takedown of like yuppies who are very self-satisfied mm-hmm. with their place in the world. And that's, like saying something because I don't think Griffin Dunn is presented as like the most successful man. He's like, you know, training a guy for a role and that guy's basically insulting his position saying like, God, I hope I'm not here that long to even like need this training. So that's a little bit different. It's not like a takedown Mm -hmm. of like a super rich guy. He has $20 to his name that he keeps misplacing throughout the film. And that's a, that's a sequence actually that I think Scorsese is really good at this. He usually has sequences early in his films where it shows you exactly what kind of movie you're in. And I think the sequence in this movie is the taxi ride when he first gets in, where it is like almost a cartoon, uh, how quickly this taxi is going, weaving in and out of traffic and out of control, which the rest of the movie for Griffin Dunn's character will be out of his control. Like there's nothing he can do except, as you mentioned, maybe move your goddamn feet and walk home. Uh, at any point in this movie, please just go home. You don't have to wait for a taxi. Uh, but I like that it's that it's set up in that way. And I also like kind of, you know, I guess what amounts to the meet cute uh, between him and Rosanna Arquette. I think that works really well. And in a different movie, this is a really weirdly sweet romantic comedy. You know, they, you know, have a bonding moment over this book and she gives her number and then they move from there. But instead, it ends in suicide and you know, almost having your head shaved, like everything that could go wrong does. I think it should have. I think uh, that's where there's a <laughs> big difference between Griffin Dunn and Robert De Niro is if De Niro's playing this part, he actually shaves part of his head yeah. and he, he wears it. I mean, you can't really, there's no discernible marking on his head. It's just, the, I guess the threat of a mohawk is right. enough, which De Niro would be all for it. Maybe it wouldn't read the same because De Niro, you'd be like, well, hell he'll do anything. Let's so do give it. the man a mohawk. Yes. Um, it's, it's funny. Like, I think you know, you're, you're saying that it's kind of got the trappings or the makings, I guess, rather of a romantic comedy. Uh, it, it predates, you know, we, we keep talking about Scorsese being ahead of his time, the terminology manic pixie dream girl. And I think mm. in certain regards, Roseanne Arquette could be that. But I think it flips it because Griffin Dunn becomes the manic pixie dream boy as yeah. far as like his quirky stories, the people he runs into. And he's, you know, <laughs> he's the added variable of fucking things up like his presence is going to fuck up a situation. And it's funny, like I'm just scrolling down. Uh, I was actually... I guess onto something there. Like this has apparently been classified as a particular subgenre of films coming out at the time, uh, classified as yuppie nightmare cycle, yeah, where there you go. a young working professional is placed under threat. So um, I dig those movies. Dave. Have you seen Something Wild? No, I don't think I have. Mm-mm. Jeff Daniels. Yeah, I think no. you'd. I think. Well, I don't know. It depends on where you're at, and you're like, I guess dating life maybe it would scare you off from like meeting attractive people because yeah, you know probably worth the risk it's fun <laughs> do you think uh this one reads as that like you know if i talked about taxi driver in previous episodes saying like uh i'll never visit new york city if it's like that like is this some sort of like thing where people outside the city 
are like, goodness, you know, those people deserve each other. Like <laughs> you, you've put all the freaks together in this, like, you know, sort of these like few blocks and let, let, I'm glad they're there and I'm not a part of it because there's just zaniness uh, happening I on every street corner. I don't think so. And I think the, the reason I don't think so is because that if you made Griffin Dunn's character kind of a blank slate, like kind of an everyman who doesn't make mistakes, but yet bad things happen to him, then yes. Um, I think it would be easy to see it like, oh my God, these freaks in the city, leave them to their, their freakiness. I don't, I don't want any part of that. But because he's kind of like, he's not a bad person, but he does some things in this movie where you're kind of like, oh, well, you don't deserve to be treated like this, but you were being kind of a jerk here. Like in this situation, like that's not really the best way you could have handled that. So I think there's some level of like, well, he kind of put himself in this position. And like you said, throughout the entire movie, I was just thinking, you know, your house might be far away. Your apartment might be far away, but like maybe make some progress and walk towards it. Like instead of just going in circles. Get out of this immediate area where you quickly in the span of like just mere hours, you know, far too much about the workings of this one particular neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Uh, And maybe, I mean, because it's a movie, I'm sure he would be pulled back in to whatever circle. But make the effort. Like, make an effort. One thing that was the problem my wife had was she was just like, get your keys and stop fooling around. Like even, even he, uh, He's asked to check on this uh, bartender's uh, place to like set the alarm and just make sure like no one has like robbed him. And then that guy will give him train fare or cab fare. Mm-hmm. Um, he has to use the restroom and of course the toilet. <laughs> and I'm thinking like, dude, stop touching stuff. Like, <laughs> like any reasonable person would be like, okay, it's unreasonable to think that if I walk into a place, there's gonna be something crazy that happens. But on this particular night, you'd be like, okay, this is just a bad streak. I'm on. Yeah. Let's go home and start over tomorrow. Let's do nothing. (laughs) Let's just hold it. You know, let's just not, you know, let's not make this the night where we try to uh, not pay to use a subway and hop over. And you know what? Because tonight's going to be the night there's a cop standing right right there and you have to, you know, hop back and retreat. Yeah. Let's not lie to Terry Gar either. Don't do that. Yeah, never lie to Terry. She's Gar. a hell of a sketch artist. Very quick. Yeah, and she, nope. and she has access to uh, photocopiers. So yes, <laughs> this is not the person you want to mess with. I think it's interesting because I randomly—I don't know why I did this—but I watched the trailer before I watched the movie. Um, and oh God, what are you doing to yourself? I don't know. Jesus, uh, you didn't so, trust it. You didn't trust Scorsese. <laughs> I was just—I was honestly—I get curious about these older movies and how they were marketed. Like, what what were people expecting? Um, so I watched the trailer and what it looks like from the trailer is this movie where it's like, oh, he meets this girl. And then because of her, he goes on all these adventures and everything goes wrong. Right. Uh, but he gets the girl in the end. That's it looks like kind of like that kind of romantic comedy, okay. maybe a little bit darker. So that's what I was expecting going in. So I love the fact that the movie doesn't do that, that it's like it introduces you to, as you mentioned, those trappings of the romantic comedy. And then like 10 minutes later, she's dead. Like she's committed suicide and like this is okay. So it's like it forces you as an audience member to kind of recalibrate and just be like, oh, well, what do we do now? Like and the fact that like it, you know, that sequence ends with him putting up signs, dead body here (laughs) with arrows, which I was like, this looks this makes you look like you're a serial killer. Like Mm -hmm. this makes you look so like at that point, I'm like, you know, granted, you're going to have some explaining to do, but like maybe just stay there. And wait for the cops. It's funny because that's actually like the least of his problems. There's no 
concerned with like law enforcement that there was any sort of shady business going on and that's you know the story is she's killed herself and it's really the the reaction that he gets from just being there with the neighbors nothing to do with a dead body it's with <laughs> stealing works of art or tvs or, or turning down terry Carr or not you know taking her bed for the night which you know i mean i don't know what that's his biggest fault done. honestly that's yeah, I don't know what his you know Paul Hackett character is pulling down, but what it's are like you, you looking know, for Terry Gar is beautiful. Just hang out just with her. Get out, get out the rain, man. You know, yeah. just you're single. You know, she's single. Have a good night and then go home. That's uh, you knew that was going to be the biggest sin I had with this yeah, movie. Yeah, and I completely agree, hundred okay. percent. Good, like, glad we're on the same page. Yeah, absolutely. But um, it's one of those movies that it makes me wonder why it's not more well known. Like this is one of those movies that kind of gets forgotten, um, except if you uh, on brand for Scorsese. Even King of Comedy has De Niro, and he's playing a, you know a lighter version, but a very taxi driver role. Mm-hmm. This doesn't really have, as you mentioned, you know, you said <laughs> Roseanne Arquette comes back from New York Stories. It doesn't have the uh, De Niro uh, sort of allegiance or something like DiCaprio, even Keitel. Yeah. So it doesn't look this is this is one that actually, you know, I, I said New York, New York could not pass for uh being made by someone other than Scorsese. This one might though. This one ma- might be the outlier. Yeah, I think you're right. And it may have something to do. We've not talked about the fact that the first half hour of this movie was completely ripped off from um I think I don't know if he's a comedian. Uh, they they say call him oh, radio artist. That's right, Joe Frank. And so this <laughs> this guy in film school submitted this script as like his thesis, and then of course it gets sold, and Scorsese's making it, and it's only after the fact they're filming it they have to pay this guy off. But it's right. like even down to the uh, the the weights, the paper mache, mm-hmm. the whole meat cute Rosanna Arquette, all of it, the uh, taxi cab scene. And uh, I don't know that that's the strange element of it. Like also uh, you mentioned it was forgotten. It says it didn't even come to video until 1991 VHS. Jesus. So six so years later, even the eighties, you didn't yeah. catch it in theaters. You know, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what the, the reasoning was like, cause it's not treated as like a disaster, like the King of comedy, no. but it just, maybe it just uh, got killed in the, uh, it's like crib death. It just like didn't never gained enough momentum Jesus. in those first six years. Jesus, talk about dark. <laughs> a movie. I mean, I'm, I'm an actual, you know, child. <laughs> You're the one that likes mother. Jesus, like. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I can't really fight back against that one. Yeah, and it's you know it's interesting that that first half hour. I think the first half hour is probably the strongest part of the movie because uh, that that sets everything in motion. Like the rest is just kind of like, and then this crazy thing happens. And then this crazy thing happens. Like it's just one thing after another. It's not like, it's not good. It's just like, it's not, you know, it's not terribly memorable or imaginative. It's just like, you know, we're going in circles now where that first half hour sets up. The setup is pretty fantastic. Well, uh, radio artist, Joe Frank. Thanks you. Uh, welcome, this Joe. was from a monologue. He gave in 1982 on NPR playhouse. So, Good job, buddy. You did good. I'm glad you got paid. I'm glad you, I'm glad you won that fight. <laughs> Wikipedia so. says he got paid handsomely. That was handsomely. a quote. Ooh. No official figures. Uh, that means it's a lot. Maybe that's why it wasn't on uh, video. <laughs> they couldn't afford years. it anymore. The rest of the budget <laughs> went to that. You're not giving that guy residuals on this. Fuck that guy. Fair enough. All right. So um, now that we've watched The King of Comedy and After Hours, which is a interesting, you know, mildly comedic uh double feature from martin scorsese where are you at now with scorsese in his career as we move forward to 
Another strange double feature, The Color of Money and The Last Temptation of Christ. Um, you know, I think uh, now, you know, finally, after seeing this this pair, I'm totally comfortable with Scorsese doing whatever he wants. You know, when we did John Ford, I was like, please stop focusing on poor people. Like, stop. You mean, you mean stop. because he went lighter in these in these last few? I just I feel like it's, at this point, it's so varied that, mm. I, that I'm no longer searching for him to do anything in particular at this point with the films that we've watched uh, for this podcast and even some that we have, we have not. Um, but you know, you're going to get his, is it his first, you know, passion project other than maybe just making films like becoming a filmmaker with last temptation of Christ. Well, yeah, it's, he said in interviews that since he was a child, he wanted to make a movie about the life of Jesus Christ. So and true passion are, project. We are skipping his from what i know his second passion project gangs of new york that did not make our cut yeah well uh, sorry which unlike new york new york we've still as far as i know there's never been an official release of scorsese's cut like rumored longer cut before yeah. harvey weinstein got his grubby mitts yeah on and it. If, if that was available we'd probably be covering gangs yep, of new york yeah so because um, we care about directors unlike miramax and harvey weinstein well, there's there's a number of differences between us and Harvey Weinstein. You know, I'll speak for Thankfully, myself. yes, yes. Many, <laughs> many differences. Almost um, all of them. <laughs> yes. We both like movies. Uh, I guess that's the only the only connection. I don't think we like them in the same way, though. I'm, I'm not True. even going to go that far. Um, so, yeah, we've got a passion project, and then we've got a quasi-sequel to a film that Scorsese, uh, Scorsese had nothing to do with. Uh, and I think what's interesting about The Color of Money is that uh, maybe people will be like me. And when they first watched it, they had never seen The Hustler. like, mm-hmm. And it works totally on its own. Or there's some people that uh, you know, they're getting a sequel in the, what they consider the right way. Where it's just mm-hmm. like you just see that character later in life and you know, it doesn't feel like... Because I'm thinking in the 80s, they weren't being like, you know, The Color of Money, The Hustler 2. I don't, I don't think <laughs> yeah. that's the way it was sold. Probably not. Um, so that, that's a weird that's a weird uh, double feature you have on uh, greed and power. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sometimes uh, the timing just works out. So we'll see uh, in our next episode how we handle that double feature. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to follow us online, you can follow us at Directed by Pod on Twitter, and you can donate to our Patreon where you can hear our full-length interviews with our film experts. Uh, it's just patreon.com slash a podcast directed by. Just like mannequins with painted skin.